Good afternoon. You guys have come back for round two. Very good. Very good. Okay, we should probably get started because I know that with the stick with the time schedule. So um, why don't we start with the word of prayer? And just before we jump into that, I just want to recommend you, you have your Bible. If you need a Bible, there should be Bibles in the back because I want to share some powerful verses with you when it comes to this teaching of hell and understanding the justice of God because there's actually a lot of, even a lot of Adventists who are missing key things about the justice of God and about hellfire. So I want to start with the word of prayer. So let's uh, bow our heads and let's ask God to bless us with the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this time. And Lord, we want to come to you humbly, Lord, asking for wisdom, the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would equip our hearts and our minds that the information we learn would be useful in reaching other people. God, we need the bomb of Gideon right now, right now in this world. So we pray that you would show us how best to healing hurting minds. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you missed last, um, last seminar's presentation, just a quick recap. What we did is we covered the Sabbath and atheism, and we learned five different places where Ellen White says the Sabbath is connected to atheism. Had the Sabbath been kept as it should, there would never have been an atheist. And we discovered it was during the early church they removed the Sabbath, and we talked about all the quotations, and it led to science being repressed, the study of the organism, the study of nature, the study of creationism. And even in the Catholic theological schools, we learned that there was a focus on the mind and no longer on the body. We also talked about uh, many of those quotations that were showing uh, sort of the repression of medical science during that time, eventually culminating with the Black Plague. Close to 200 million people died. We also learned it would have been simple, rudimentary procedures that would have saved millions from dying. And then we also discovered it was shortly after that's when the French Revolution took place, whereas you had in the Dark Ages a religion that was focused on not having any science and its pendulum swung. You now had a science that wanted to do nothing with religion. Like Ellen White says in Great Controversy, where popery began the work, atheism was completing it. And so this is where we get our modern atheistic movement. Well, the name of this seminar is called Insane or Infidel When Hellfire Doesn't Go Out. When something that's very interesting, when I was actually going over these presentations, I'm doing three, I did one right before, and then there's two more, I found a certain theme coming, emerging, and it was about health. You know, you think, okay, at Weimar, you would expect that. But I wasn't planning on just focusing on health, but I just found it kind of emerging. The last presentation, I talked about the importance of the health message. This presentation, I'm going to be talking about just the healing of the mind. And the next presentation is also going to be dealing with health as well in the midst of all our doctrines and teachings. But this presentation is called Insane or Infidel, When Hellfire Doesn't Go Out. When you see a mother and her child walking, you see a very beautiful relationship. You know, the Bible talks about a, a relationship about a mother and a child being so strong that God says, look, he says, he says, if a mother, he says, it is possible even for a mother, it's like so unlikely to even forsake her child, but God will never forsake you. But you see God stressing the idea of just the importance of a mother-child relationship. Every one of us is bonded to a mother of some kind. But here's something very interesting. There was a story that broke earlier this year, and it was a story about a lady by the name of Andrea uh, Pitt Yates. Some of you guys may know who she is. I believe this took place in February. 
she had a nervous breakdown, a mental breakdown, where because of the things that were just swirling around in her mind, she ended up drowning five of her children. That is that lady right there. And she has, uh, her court case I believe was in February, and that is five of her children that were killed by her because of, the something, because of some things that were taking place in her mind. Well, here's one of the reports that was released by Chronicle News. Andrea Pia Yates told a jail psychiatrist the day after her arrest that she drowned her five children to save them from eternal hell. The doctor testified Friday. My children were not righteous. I let them stumble. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. Yates told Dr. Melissa Ferguson, the medical director of psychiatric services at the Harris County Jail, Ferguson was the first witness to testify for the defense in Yates' capital murder trial. And she painted a picture of a delusional woman obsessed with the images of Satan. Ferguson said Yates told her during the first jail evaluation on June 21st, this must have been actually last year, that she was a bad mother. Yates cried and moaned loudly towards the end of Ferguson's assessment. It was the seventh deadly sin. My children weren't righteous. They stumbled because I was evil. Ferguson quoted Yates as saying, the way I was raising them, they could never be saved. Better for someone else to tie a millstone around their neck and cast them in a river than stumble. You can see just the gross misinterpretation. They were going to perish. In all the patients I've treated for major depression with psychotic features, she is one of the sickest I have ever seen, said Ferguson, noting that she had treated 6,000 patients when she had stopped counting several years ago. In fact, I was looking at the reports of this lady. She began to be so obsessed with this teaching about eternal hellfire. She was so scared of, about what was possibly going to happen in the future. She said, in order to save my children from reaping up judgment, I'm going to end their life. You can just see the mental sickness that this woman is dealing with. What's really interesting, when you take a good look in our world today, the majority of Christianity has accepted this teaching, and the reality is that if they begin to really, truly understand what this false teaching is about, it will lead to only one of two conclusions, Ellen White says. One of two conclusions. In fact, Ellen White talking about this false teaching about how God supposedly burns people for all of eternity for trillions and trillions, trillions and trillions and trillions of years, she uses very strong language against that false teaching. Look what she says right here. How repugnant to every emotion of love and mercy and even to our sense of justice is the doctrine that the wicked dead are tormented with fire and brimstone in eternally burning, burning hell. That for the sins of a brief earthly life, they are to suffer torture as long as God shall live. Where in the pages of God's word is such a teaching to be found? Will the redeemed, be in, hev will, will the redeemed in heaven be lost to all emotions of pity and compassion, even to feelings of common humanity? No, no, such is not the teaching of the book of God. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, now watch what she says right here, it's very powerful. Can we wonder that our merciful God, merciful creator is feel, feared, even hated? Now, some of us have grown up Adventists. I didn't grow up Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, when I was coming into the Christian faith, one of the problems I had was this idea that God would eternally burn those who did not love him, who did not know him. Now, for some of us who know, just know the beautiful teaching of annihilation and that when God deals with sin and sinners at the end of time, he plans to destroy it altogether. So we become very comfortable. 
But here's the thing. If you've ever lived with, the pre, with that other kind of worldview, it is so sickening to you. And the thought of it make, can make you tremble and so confused about the character of God. So she says right here, it is so repugnant. And she says, when you see the false colors that Satan has painted about who God is, she says, no wonder people out in the world are either skeptical of him or they hate him or they fear him. In fact, what is so remarkable, when you take a good look at what she is saying, there is one of two responses, she says, when people actually legitimately accept this teaching that God destroys sinners for all of eternity. She says, A, they become either insane, or B, they become infidels, or unbelievers, or skeptics. In fact, look what she says right here. In great controversy, how utterly revolting is the belief that as soon as the breath leaves the body, the soul of the impenitent is consigned to the flames of hell. To what depths of anguish must, must those be plunged who see their friends passing to the grave unprepared to enter upon an eternity of woe and sin? Now look what she says right here. Apologize for just the coloring, the lettering. Many have been driven to what? Insanity by this harrowing thought. This idea that when God deals with the wicked at the end of time, he plans to torture them for all of eternity. That's trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions years of mindless, unceasing torture and pain, and it never stops and you never get used to it. This is the teaching that is being prescribed by much of Christianity as a motivation for following Jesus. And she says right here, when people begin to really accept this, no wonder that many are driven to insanity. In fact, what I did is I went online and I found several testimonies of people who actually had nervous mental breakdowns because of this teaching. Watch what Roger Tut says from Toronto, California, or Toronto, Canada, excuse me. When I was seven, my stepmother lit a fire in a beaker and said to me, if you don't open your heart store to Jesus and invite him in, God is going to put you in a fire much bigger and hotter than after you die, and he will never, ever let you get out of it. So in my heart, I prayed the way she said that I had to. A while later, she said, it's obvious that you are still not saved because you are still such a bad boy. At that point in time, I felt totally helpless, and I was sure that God had given up on on me. My dad used to beat me with the bamboo cane, repeatedly shouting, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, until the welts on my legs would bleed. He told me that it was easy to tell at an early age that I was going to go to hell. Now, you may think, wow, that's interesting on paper. People believe this stuff. Sometimes Adventists were so sort of confined to just other Adventists, we do not realize that the majority of Christianity actually accepts this false teaching and has to deal with those type of thoughts continue. They, then they both sent me away to a foster home because they could no longer cope with my bad behavior. My real mother had, been, had died giving birth to me. My dad's second wife had died at childbirth, but, two, two, but the child did not live either. So at the age of seven, I became convinced that everyone had given up on me, including God. Later, at the age of 28, I'm 67 now, I began a 12-year nervous breakdown over my inability to successfully emotionally cope with the idea that God lets any creature suffer forever. This woman actually had a mental nervous breakdown because she could not understand how God, who is a God of love, could burn sinners for all of eternity. In fact, take a good look at this. 
testimony right here. This is from Cindy, who's from Ohio. I lost a non-saved father. Just last year, actually, he died at 78 in August. I have been in torment ever since. Just can't get any peace. Long story. I've been a Christian for 24 years, but my dad was always a stubborn man who just never opened up to the gospel. He was a nice man, though, but stuck in his long-term views. I had to be hospitalized. I am losing my ability to speak, hospitalized in April, because ever since my dad died, I felt like I was going to hell. Even though I have been searching out this universalism path for a few years, I suddenly went back to my Armenianism ways when dad got sick and thought everyone was up to me. I prayed and prayed, etc. Nothing happened and my dad died. But worse, I could not ask dad to believe in God in his last week as I was so afraid he might say yeah, he might not say yes or that I felt it was all up to me. Anyways, I can go on and on. Please respond if you can. This was a letter she sent to somebody. Thank you. I have had a nervous breakdown too. Actually, two of them. The first one at age 21, not hospi hospitalized, and the second one at 31 years. She had to go to the hospital, both due to a constant dread that my loved ones were going to spend eternity in hell because they were not born again. Here you can see again and again just this idea, what, what Ellen White is saying, that those who accept this teaching, many of them are driven to insanity. This is from Susan, California. First, I would like to say that the teaching of eternal hell robbed me of a happy childhood. My father was not a believer, and I was continually worried that he was going to die and go to hell forever. I went through a period of depression as a kid because of this. Another interesting thing is that I married an unbeliever. Time I completely believed that my husband was going to hell because he died in unbelief. It was like I was trying to defy God in a way, but showing him that I could fall in love with the hellion, so why can't God do the same? Do you see her, the psychology of this woman? And do you see what she's trying to mentally cope with? I thought, doesn't he love these outcast sinners? Then to top it off, I wanted a child, even though I believed there was a good chance my child could grow up to become an unbeliever. This caused me so much grief and eventually led me to searching for answers to all the questions I had. I also had a friend who I used to go to church with. She is much older than me, and she found out a couple years ago that her son is a homosexual. She went into a deep depression and had to be hospitalized many times. I found out that most of her depression was rooted in the fact that she believed her son was doomed for eternal hell in the next life. And ladies and gentlemen, there's testimony after testimony after testimony after testimony of people who've had nervous mental breakdowns, who went through even psychotic spells because they had a hard time really um, accepting this belief that God would burn people for all of eternity. In fact, look what Ellen White says. She herself, by the way, was almost driven to insanity when she was younger. Because as she began to learn about a God's character of love, she could not sort of rectify how God would burn people for all of eternity. Look what she says right here. I thought that the fate of the condemned sinner would be mine, to endure the flames of hell forever, even as long, God as, long as God himself existed. This impression deepened under my mind until I feared that I would lose my reason. I would look upon the dumb beasts with envy because they had no soul to be punished after death. Many times the wish arose that I had, that I had never been born. In fact, she says right here something very interesting. I have since thought that many inmates of the lunatic asylums were brought there by experiences similar to my own. Their tender consciences having been stricken with the sense of sin and their trembling faith dare not claim the promised pardon of God. They have listened to the descriptions of the orthodox hell until, it's been, until it has seemed to, 
to curdle the very blood in their veins and burnt an impression upon the tablets of their memory. Waking or sleeping, the frightful picture has ever been before them until reality has become lost in imagination and they see the only wreathing flames of a fabulous hell and hear the shrieking of the damned. Reason has become dethroned and the brain is filled with a wild, wild fantasy of a terrible dream. Those who teach a doctrine of eternal hell would do well to look more closely after their authorities for such so cruel a belief. Here you can say, here you can see over and over again, she is stressing this point that those who accept this belief and teach it, they are driving many people to be insane, to have mental breakdown, nervous disorders. But then she says, there is another effect of those who accept this teaching that God burns people for all of eternity. Look what she says in Great Controversy. It is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, both full of love and goodness and abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful creator is feared, dreaded, or even hated? The appalling views of God which have spread over the world from the teachings of the pulpit, look what she says, have made thousands, yes, millions of skeptics and infidels. Remember what I said to you a little bit earlier? False Christian teaching leads to skepticism. And by the way, false Christian living leads to paganism. That's a sermon for another day. But this is extremely important for us to understand. And if you're part of last, the last seminar, we begin to understand how the French Revolution and militant atheism arose because of the false pictures that were painted during the Dark Ages and into the Middle Ages. In fact, Sam Harris, he's one of the four horsemen of, of atheism, of one of the four horsemen of atheism. He says this, he wrote this book called The End of Faith. He says this, many of these people, he's just a renowned atheist, will be going to hell because they're praying to the wrong God. Just think about that. Okay, there are 1.2 billion people in India at this moment. Most of them are Hindus. Most of them, therefore, are polytheists. No matter how good these people are, they are doomed. If you are, if you are praying to the monkey god Hanuman, you'll be doomed, okay? You'll be tortured in hell for eternity. So you can see just how these, many of these atheists, these skeptics, are simply reasoning, wait a minute, how could God be a God of love? Is he if he's destroying people for all of eternity just because they don't know him? But little does this man know, the Bible teaches a different picture. In fact, by the way, if you read Revelation chapter 22 and you find out those who are outside the gates, you will find that those who are outside the gates are more because they violated the last six of the commandments than the first four, which is a very interesting point. Look at Richard Dawkins says, who wrote this book called The Selfish Gene, and is probably the most vociferous atheist who's existing on planet Earth right now. The extreme horribleness of hell, as portrayed by priests and nuns, is inflated to compensate for its implausibility. If hell were plausible, it would only have to be moderately unpleasant in order to deter. Given that it is so unlikely to be true, it has to be advertised as very, very scary indeed to balance its implausibility and retain some deterrence value. In fact, look what this guy says, Christopher Hitchens, he actually died, I believe last year it was. Eternal torture, eternal punishment for you and all your family for the smallest transgression? I have no hesitation in saying this is a wicked belief. Remember what Ellen White says? She says this false teaching has led thousands, yes, millions to be skeptics, infidels, atheists. And sure enough, what we are looking at is what she is saying. 
Daniel Dennett, he wrote, he wrote another book, but he said this, the Christian God is the God of judgment and punishment, eternal punishment for unrepentant sinners and disbelievers. If you read the Bible literally, God, the perpetrator of infinite pain. In fact, this one's going to be mind-blowing right here. Charles Darwin. I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Here you can see where many of this atheistic movement, this sort of a focus on a, a science without a religion, really begin to be propelled because it was this false teaching that was really being pushed during the Dark Ages and into the Middle Ages. In fact, what is very interesting is that I was actually doing a seminar, and this is what got me really started on this subject. It was two years ago. And I got really sick one day. I was, preaching on, I was about to preach on the state of the dead and hellfire in the same weekend. I got really, really sick. I mean, I just was like, oh, I can't even move. And I was in the middle of this evangelistic series. So I had some people come by. They did some cool hydrotherapy. And like, I, I just felt really good. And we had some good prayer time. And God just absolutely blew away the sermon. It's probably one of the most powerful sermons I've ever given on the state of the dead and hellfire. Two or three days later, one of the people who, have been in t who was attending my presentations came to me and they said, hey, I went to my Sunday church. It was a big mega church in the city. And they said, my pastor actually talked about hell too on the same weekend. I said, really? Why don't you tell me a little bit more? She says, that same weekend you were talking about hell, he, he had this, you know, he preached his sermon, but he woke up one morning before his sermon and he said that he had this incredible nightmare slash vision where God took him into the fiery pits of hell. And he said that it was during his sermon, she said that during his sermon, he began to describe what was happening while he was in this so-called journey of going through hell. The same weekend, I was teaching the truth about what the Bible says about hell. And she says that he was preaching about how he was going through hell and he was seeing all all these people being tortured and they were shrieking and he was coming out of it and he was just sweating and he just began to understand that there is a hell and God is burning people for all of eternity right now. And that's what he told his congregation. And I realized when I, well, after that weekend that we are in the middle of a great controversy battle. When we present the truth, Satan's going to double up to make sure that others don't know these truths. And that's why it's very important for us who have this beautiful picture of God. Share it with many people. Can you say amen to that? Amen. In fact, there, um, a documentary that's going to be about hell. It came out two years ago, a year ago. They actually did a survey on hell. And they found out for, uh, I believe it was interviewing, about almost 5,000 people. They found out what their view is about hellfire. One person, or one group said, and this was the highest ranked group, that 38% believe in eternal torment, that God is going to burn people for all of eternity. 21% said it just doesn't exist. 18% said universalism, which means that everyone's going to get to heaven regardless of what you do. And the next one, 13% said we just don't know. And where we are as Seventh-day Adventists, which is something called annihilationism, only 10%. Only 10% actually have these same teachings out in the Protestant world. So does that tell us we have a mission to carry out? Amen? That's why it's super important for us to be able to share this. Does anybody know who this individual is? Yes. Edward Fudge. They just made a movie called Hell 
and Mr. Fudge. Well, he's actually a friend of mine. I called him up, and you know what he told me? He said something very interesting. When he was discovering this teaching about hell, and just a little bit about a story, he was actually somebody who uh, was a minister. He's also a lawyer. He was actually hired to study out this issue of hell. And uh, he was actually studied, he was actually paid by a former Seventh-day Adventist who actually gave up the teachings of Adventism, but was still a little bit questioning the whole hell thing. And so he hired somebody who wasn't Adventist, and this guy, his name was Edward Fudge, really, that's really his last name. He studied it out, right? And he came to the exact same conclusions as Seventh-day Adventists. Can you say amen to that? But what is interesting, as we were talking, he told me some remarkable things. He said that when he did a debate at Biola University, Biola is a well-known evangelical college down in Southern California, he said that when he did this debate about Hellfire, he said 30 minutes prior to this debate, he says the auditorium was completely packed, 400 seats, completely packed. He said when we actually had to start, we had to turn away hundreds of people. And he says, you want to know what this communicates to me? I said, what? He says that many people want to know the truth about this subject. And that's why we have to share this. Do you know when you present this right teaching about the character of God and his justice, people begin to have a better understanding about the gospel. And they want Jesus. And what's keeping them away from Jesus is this false teaching. And we also talked about those who have been driven to insanity as well. Ladies and gentlemen, when we present this teaching, it is like a bomb to their mind. I never forgot, as I was becoming a Christian, I still had a difficult time understanding many of these things. It was very difficult for me to grasp how millions of my ancestors who never even heard of Christ would be burning in hell for all of eternity. I never forgot one Sabbath morning when I was having that Bible study with the Sabbath school teacher and my friend. I walked out of there, out of that room, and it was like the, the sky was a little bit bluer. The birds were chirping a little louder. And I just turned to my friend. I said, the Bible does never, it never says eternal punishing. It says just a punishment. But I said, there's nothing eternal about how God deals with the wicked. I mean, and I was just so blown away with this idea that God isn't going to burn people for all of eternity. He's going to put sin out once and for all. Amen. And I walked out there with this recognition that God really is good. And it just began to really change so many things in my own heart and mind. Let's continue. John Wynnum, who's actually a Greek scholar and a, the a theologian too, who passed away, he came to the same conclusions. Not an Adventist. He wrote this book called Facing Hell. Died in 1996. Look what he says. I feel that the time has come when I must declare my mind honestly and believe that an endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine, which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should indeed be happy if before I die, I love what he says, I could help in sweeping it away. Most of all, I should rejoice to see a number of theologians joining in researching this great topic. And ladies and gentlemen, his dream is not dead. Amen? Amen. That as we share this with many people, people will run to it and really accept it, and it will lead them closer and closer to Jesus. Now, as we begin to understand some things, I love what C.S. Lewis says right here. The question of being an apologist is not so much whether you use an apologetic in answering someone's question, but whether the apologetic you already use is a good one. You're a witness whether you want to believe it or not. When you choose to share, you're being a, a good witness. When you're choosing not to share, you're still being a witness of a kind. So the question is, what kind of witness are you going to be? 
And so it's very important that as we're working with people, how to deal with some of the objections and the assumptions that are there that help clear up so much about the character of God. Let's talk about assumption number one. Assumption number one. You may want to start writing these things down. Sinners given the punishment of eternal burning hell is very pleasing and just to God and the redeemed. Did you know that there are many Christians who actually try to promote this teaching that the sinners, that those who die and are given the punishment of eternal burning hell, that this somehow satisfies the justice of God and is pleasing to the redeemed. In fact, I was reading what some of the early church fathers wrote. They were actually writing in trying to defend this, earth, this teaching that God burns people for all of eternity, that the, the, the saints one day are going to be upon the sea of glass and they're going to be praising God during the time that the wicked are shrieking for millions and millions and millions of years. And they were saying that the praises of God will somehow rise above their eternal shrieking. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand how sick that teaching really is. Now, how do we understand this? And what is the best way to go about this? Here's a very powerful verse right here. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no what? pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if the wicked are burning for all of eternity and God has no death or no pleasure in the death of the wicked, could God ever be happy? God could never even be happy. And if God could never be happy for all of eternity, could we ever be happy? See, you see right here that when God has to destroy the wicked, it really is his strange act. He has no pleasure in it. And so for sinners to be destroyed for eternity... Ladies and gentlemen, or eternally, this will give no pleasure to God for all of eternity. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, watch what this individual says right here. For this reason, Christianity in one breath espouses a God of infinite mercy and pity, and another describes the fires of hell in which millions upon millions writhe, even now in horrible and unending pain, has for many people become an absurd joke. What does eternal torment say about God's character? What kind of justice does it represent? Hey, even after a hundred billion eons burning in hell, even Hitler would have paid for his own sins. Clifford Goldstein said that. Watch what this individual says right here. Think for a moment about the implications of a doctrine that would consign every lost soul to an immediate, never-ending hell at the time of death. Suppose a man died 5,000 years with one cherished sin in his life. His soul will go instantly into the fire to be tormented for eternity. Then picture another death, that of Adolf Hitler, who supervised the death of millions of people. According to the popular doctrine, his soul would immediately enter hell to suffer eternity. But the man who was lost because of only one sin will burn 5,000 years longer than Hitler will? How could that be just? Joe Cruz. Assumption number two. God is angry with the wicked, therefore he keeps them out of heaven. The reason why God does not want people in heaven is because he is angry with them. Now, how do we answer that? I love what Ellen White says right here. She says something so powerful right here. This is extremely important, you guys. This is why God has to deal with sin. Why he has to keep sinners out. Right here. Look what she says in Steps to Christ. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own what? Unfitness 
for its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction had they been, that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. Ladies and gentlemen, if God brought every single sinner into heaven, every single of the one of the wicked, and made them live with him for all of eternity, that would be eternal torment. God actually destroys the wicked to save them for eter from eternal torment. And you begin to realize the big implications of this. The reason why God has to destroy sin is because it has no place in heaven. Now watch this. I'm going to show you something remarkable in the Bible. Take your Bible and go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This blew my mind away when I began to understand this. Revelation chapter 12. You're really going to like this. Revelation chapter 12. I have never ever heard a preacher talk about this. Right here, Revelation chapter 12, right here. Seven. Watch what the Bible says. Are you all there? Look what the Bible says. And war broke out where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a what? Place found for them in heaven any what? Now, this is extremely important. Don't forget that phrase right there. Nor was there a place found for them in where? Heaven any longer. The reason why Satan could no longer go into heaven at the cross was because no one wanted him there. In other words, he was unfit for the companionship of heaven. It's not even that heaven did not have a heart for Lucifer. It's that Lucifer finally reached a state where he had no more heart for heaven. Now you're saying, okay, what's the big, big deal about this? Go all the way to Revelation chapter 20, and I want you to see the exact same language when God is dealing with the wicked. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is talking about the destruction of the wicked. Are we all there? Look what the Bible says right here. Then I saw a great what? White throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Now watch this. And there was found what? No place for them. Here we begin to understand why the wicked are destroyed as well. Because earth is no longer a place for the wicked. Earth has now become unfit for the wicked. Or they have become unfit for earth. So here we begin to understand something remarkable that the wicked have actually reached the same condition that Lucifer has. Let's continue. F.F. Bruce, by the way, he's another powerful non-Adventist theologian. He actually died. He said this, eternal conscious torment is incompatible with the revealed character of God. Assumption number three, there are many verses that talk about everlasting punishment. Somebody says, wait a minute, what about all those verses that talk about everlasting, eternity, eternity? That sounds like God's going to burn people for all of eternity. Here's what Basil C. Atkinson said, and he was a Greek theologian. He talked about this. When the adjective, anios, meaning everlasting, is used in Greek with the nouns of action, it has reference to the result of the act, not the process. The phrase everlasting punishment is comparable to everlasting redemption and everlasting salvation, both scriptural phrases. No one supposes that we are being redeemed or saved forever. We were redeemed and saved once 
for all by Christ with eternal results. In the same way, the lost will not be passing through the process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and for all with eternal results. On the other hand, the noun life is not a noun of action, but a noun of expressing a state. Thus, life itself is eternal. And here we begin to understand something very powerful when it comes to these phrases that we find in Scripture. In fact, what is very interesting, when you study the New Old Testament, I have not found one verse that talks about hell being a place where there is eternal torment taking that's happening. Not in the Old Testament whatsoever. What I do find in the Old Testament, Jesus simply saying is that there is going to be some type of accountability in at the second coming, or at the, um, when the wicked are finally destroyed. Assumption number four. Since the eternal God was offended, therefore his punishment must be eternal progressive for him to be satisfied. And this comes from those people who are a little bit more sophisticated, where they say, no, no, well, there really isn't some fire, but the wicked are going to be in agony for all of eternity. And then they say, what the reason why they're going to be punished for all of eternity is because that they offended an eternal God. Therefore, the punishment must be eternal. Now, this is very interesting, and you begin to see some very major fallacies here. Because reconciling infinite torment with justice and fairness is illogical, traditionalists will often paint the target around the bullet hole by connecting two independent things, the necessary duration of judgment for justice and God's immortality. Some would rather contrive a false connection that simply admit that they don't quite understand how infinite punishing could ever be. In truth, God's innate immortality has no scriptural or logical bearing on any supposed necessity to punish people without end. God is not bound or forced to punish anyone infinitely simply because he is immortal. But traditionalists produce the connection to eternal torture to sound less questionable. It is relating, it is, it's related to the clustering illusion, which is the natural human tendency to see patterns where none actually exist. That God is immoral does not necessitate infinite punishment for sin to achieve justice. Such theological manipulation is just an attempt to extract the sense from the senseless. Assumption number five. Wait a minute, somebody says, the New Testament gives examples about smoke rising from the eternal pits of hell. In fact, when you take a good look at the verses that are used in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, look what the Bible says. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest or day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Somebody says, wait a minute, that looks like God is tormenting people for all of eternity. What's very interesting is many of the verses that are used to describe hellfire and that accountability period all come from the Old Testament. And when they're referenced to the Old Testament, not only is the similarity of the language there, but you begin to understand why. Isaiah 34, verses 8 through 10. This is actually talking about when Edom attacked Zion. The year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. But you go to where Edom was once was. Ladies and gentlemen, the smoke is not there anymore. The fire is not there anymore. What is it simply saying? That the results of judgment will be for eternity. That there is no more Edom. They will not attack Israel anymore. And so this is what God was saying. So when God is, when you see 
references describing what sounds like torment, it's generally applicable to Old Testament stories and verses where God is showing the complete destruction but using strong language to indicate that those who mess with God's people are going to be in big trouble. Assumption number six, God judges the wicked and causes them to be punished. Now, this is extremely important. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Okay? This, I want you to pay attention to this. God judges the wicked and causes them to be punished. According to this assumption, who ultimately makes the final word on the wicked? Well, God. Well, this is the assumption. Well, God is the one who is choosing the wicked to be lost. He ultimately is the judge of why they're lost. Now, take your Bible. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 20. I want you to see something very remarkable again. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I want you to see verse 1. Then I saw another angel coming down from him, having the key to the what? Bottomless pit. By the way, that phrase, bottomless pit, that word, Greek word appears another place when Jesus is about to cast out the demon and he says, have you come to send us to the abyss? It's the exact same word. Even the demons know that their destruction is coming, which also tells us, well, what then is their motivation? It's not survivalism. They want to make sure you never take their place in heaven. Okay, let's continue. Having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And by the way, this is just a caveat right here. I just got to share this with you. I actually was always questioning, wait a minute, why does Satan need 1,000 years? Why does he just need this time period? Ellen actually gives the answer. She says, because he has been in this fury of activity, the 1,000 years is actually given to him to stop and contemplate what he's done. Because he's been so determined to carry out all these things, he's actually never stopped and thought about the ramifications of what he's produced. And during the thousand years, he actually has that time period. Still doesn't change his heart. But this is what's so remarkable right here. After the thousand years, we know the rest of the story. He is released. In fact, this is very interesting. Look what Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, why Satan was not destroyed immediately. And for the sake of who? For the sake of man, Satan's existence must be what? The reason why God has not destroyed Satan right now is because this is an extremely important reason. If you miss this point, you're going to miss so much about this whole great controversy. The reason why Satan has not been destroyed, it's for our sake. In other words, there are issues in the great controversy that have not been answered. And had those questions not been answered, the universe will never, ever be kept safe eternally. So God allows the great controversy to culminate so he can be very, so the universe can be very convinced or humanity can be very convinced about all the issues of the great controversy. In fact, look what the Bible says right here. Go all the way to verse 7. 
I'm sorry, go all the way to verse 3. And I want you to see something very interesting talking about Lucifer. So that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years. We're finished. Now watch this. But after these things, notice the key word. He, what? Must be released. That's very important. It's almost as if God is saying something very important. He's like, look, after the thousand years, he's got to be released. There are questions that are still not answered about the great controversy up to that time. That's why the Bible says he must be released. And so you know what he does after that thousand years? He immediately begins to stir up all the wicked. And then he says, all right, we're going to do one. And this one's going to blow your mind away. Do you know she says in great controversy when the wicked are approaching? And I just want you to think about this. I'm not going to even tell you the answer on this. Okay? She actually says that when, when the wicked are approaching the city, that's when the gates are closed to the new Jerusalem. You're saying, well, what's your point? If they're closed when the wicked are approaching the city, why do you think they're open prior to that time? And I'm going to let you think about that and cogitate on that. But all I can say is this. The wicked tried to take by force what God has always offered to them freely. In fact, during that thousand years, look what the Bible says all the way in verse 4. I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was what? Committed to them. You know what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1? We'll be priests and kings. Do you know the Bible says during the thousand years we are specifically called to be priests? Do you know when we're called to be kings? Right after that. You read actually the language and several verses in the book of Revelation. What's the difference between a priest and a king? A priest rules in spiritual matter. A king rules in matters of the land. And so what happens is during that thousand years, God actually gives us the role of a priest. When you go to the Old Testament, there's actually a verse that talks about how when there's a judgment, the priests will examine the books. They will look at the, the controversy and they themselves will judge in the matter. So ultimately, it is not God who makes this judgment. God actually says to the, to the righteous in, in the, during the judgment, he says, I'm actually going to give you the judgment. The same word that says judgment was committed to them is the same word where Jesus is in the Gospels, and he says, the Father has committed judgment to me. And you know what Jesus does? He commits judgment to the righteous. He says, no, I'm going to put this in the hands of the righteous. In other words, it, it, ultimately, it is not God who judges the wicked. It is humanity that judges humanity. But we're going to even take it a step further. Even a step further. In fact, read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Bible says that we will be part of this judgment. One of the reasons why God is teaching us mercy now is very important. That's important for you to understand. Look what Revelation says. Um, I'm sorry, great controversy. When all the wicked are about to be destroyed, with all the facts of the great controversy in the view. Now, there is no more question about the great controversy. The whole universe, both loyal and rebellious, with one accord declare just and true are your what? Thy ways and king of saints. So now you begin to understand, even the wicked will be able to see why judgment is necessary. So ultimately, God passes the judgment to the righteous. And you know what the righteous do? They pass the judgment to the wicked. And ultimately, it will be the wicked who judge themselves. Even in the destruction of the wicked, 
God doesn't violate the freedom of choice. They themselves will say, Lord, we deserve this. We deserve this. The wicked are made to see why and how they have made themselves unfit for heaven. And when you begin to understand the judgment and the justice of God, you begin to recognize the way God runs his government. God actually gets a consensus of those who are involved in the context before he carries out a reward or penalty. A reward or penalty. Let's continue. Assumption 7. This is an extremely important point. Well, what then would keep the righteous from rebelling again if not for the sight of hell? Some people say, wait a minute. When the righteous are going to be in heaven, what's going to keep them safe from ever sinning again? It will be when they see the wicked burning for all of eternity. That is going to be the, the anchor that is going to prevent the righteous from ever rebelling against God again in heaven. Now I want you to think about that. You can say to yourself, wait a minute, could that be a deterrent? Could that keep the righteous safe for all of eternity? Could that be used? The sight of the wicked burning for all of eternity, could that be the deterrent to save them from ever rebelling again in heaven? I love what Ellen White says right here. It's so powerful. Look what she says. She says this, The death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death, who was the originator of sin. There will, no be, there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. Why is that? That which alone can effectually restrain sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. Well, what's that? The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have had a home in the paradise of God without the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not what? Secure, except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than when the angels before the fall of Satan. All who wish for security in earth or in heaven must look to the Lamb of God. And you know what's going to keep the universe from ever sinning again? The cross of Calvary. Can you say amen to that? That is going to be the safety for all of eternity. It is not going to be the wicked that are going to burn for eternity. And that's what's going to see, keep the righteous from uh, ever falling into sin. It will constantly, constantly be looking to the cross of Calvary. And ladies and gentlemen, even the angels are kept safe from ever rebelling again. Why? Because they're looking at the cross. They're looking. And by the way, read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. The Bible says that angels desire to look into the mystery of the gospel. Angels are kept safe by looking at the cross. And for eternity, you know what we're going to be studying? We're going to be studying for all of eternity God's love. If God is infinite and the Bible says God is love, therefore his love is infinite. And you know what we're going to be studying as finite beings? We're going to be studying the love of God for all of eternity. And just when we think we reach the boundaries, we're going to be so surprised. It just keeps going more and more and more and more. Ladies and gentlemen, do you think you understand the love of God now? You have no clue. You have no clue. God is wanting to reveal so much more to every person here. 
And when you begin to understand the beautiful justice of God, you begin to understand some powerful things about the cross of Calvary and why right there at that point 2,000 years ago, that will be the safeguard for all of eternity. That's trillions and 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 trillions of years. We'll be kept safe by looking back at the cross. Can you say amen to that? Isn't the cross of Calvary powerful? We need to start looking at it now. And if it can safeguard angels, and if it can safeguard the humanity for all of eternity, it will safeguard us now. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Really quick, coming down to an end. Here's some questions you can ask some people. If God recreates a new heaven and earth, where will hell be located? If God pronounces no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, and by the way, do you know when that pronunciation takes place? It takes place after the thousand years. If there is an eternal dying of lost souls, if immortality is based on the tree of life, how do the unrighteous burn for all of eternity? Remember you read Revelation, Genesis chapter 3? Remember they were to eat of the tree of life so they could what? Live forever. It's not that the wicked are burning for all of eternity, and God says, here, eat another fruit so you can burn another thousand years. No, that doesn't happen. Immortality was contingent upon eating that fruit. If hell is real, why is it not mentioned in most leading English Bible translations until Matthew? If hell was real and if Paul was commissioned by the gospel to preach the gospel to the nations, why did Paul not mention hell except once to declare victory over it? Because you begin to understand Paul's motivation of leading people to the cross of Calvary. It was the cross. It was God's love. And ladies and gentlemen, you know what the argument God, uh, Ellen White's mom used on Ellen White to finally convince her about this teaching of hell? She says, if God's love cannot save sinners, then what chance does an eternal burning hellfire have? If God's love can't do it, how could fear of hell ever do it? And this led to Ellen White being convinced of these beautiful truths. So powerful. If God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how does trillions and trillions of years of torment of the wicked ever satisfy him? Here's another question. How does one, rect one rectify an eternal punishing because of temporal deeds? Here's another question. What purpose does he destroying sinners nonstop for all of eternal existence ever accomplish? If the wicked go straight to hell after death, what's the purpose of a second coming and future judgment? Here's another question. If evildoers are burning for all of eternity, then has God actually destroyed evil or simply locked it up? Under what circumstances could ceaseless torture and endless progressive affliction be justified? If we in a sinful world could not tolerate such evil, how in a perfectly loving heaven could it ever be loved? And ladies and gentlemen, there is only one crime, probably, where someone could, that would justify somebody being tortured for all of eternity. Only one crime. Someone who eternally tortures people. Do you get my point? That would be the only one justifiable crime for someone, for someone to be burned for all of eternity if they burn people for all of eternity. You get my point? You see why we need to spread this beautiful truth? And when people see it, they're going to be blown away when they begin to recognize this beautiful truth that God doesn't burn people for all of eternity. I just did an evangelistic series in Mountain View. I'm going to talk about that series tonight. And the reason why is because, let me just tell you about my neighbors, where I was staying at, just a few streets down. My neighbor on the right, 
was actually VP of YouTube. YouTube, you heard me. The neighbor on the other side was president of an internet company called Simtech. You ever heard of that company? Walked across the street, hung out with Bob, who was working on a European muscle car. Went back to the house. Friend said, oh, you met Bob. I go, yeah. They said, he's vice president of the Wells Fargo Corporation. I go, the, the bank right there on the corner? The entire Wells Fargo Corporation. And I did this evangelist series. God really blessed. I never forgot as I was preaching, and you just see the marked difference. When I got to this topic and I preached, and the Holy Spirit totally blessed, everybody up to that time, there was just sort of this tension that was existing. But after that, there was just a change in the rest of the series. Like people were coming with just this joy, and they were just so happy, and they got up there, and they were just, they were just so excited about learning about the Bible and Bible prophecy. Why? because they begin to understand the character of God and the reality of who he was. There are a lot of people who want to know this truth. You know, we showed this movie called Hell and Mr. Fudge, and we did this. I love doing different things for evangelism. And what we did is a question-answer session, okay? And let me just tell you, the Pentecostals came to town that day. And many of these Pentecostals, they want the fire. They just want the fire. It was like, we want people to burn. And so, like, I was just I was up there, and it was like, I got up there, and I was doing questions, and I told my, the people who were passing my mic, I'm like, when you hand the mic to people to ask them a question, they, they want to ask a question, you take that mic and you go to the next person. I said, don't leave the mic with them. And so they were going from person to person. But I began to recognize something very interesting. Those who were trying to defend this teaching that God burns people for all of eternity, themselves did not understand what they were saying. Because a simple question would reveal how incompatible this is with the God of love. How incompatible this is with the God of love. Here's some more questions. If hellfire is the eternal fire, why is Sodom not burning today after it was destroyed with eternal fire? How is the concept of eternal burning hell consistent with God's revealed justice? And what do we know about God's revealed justice? We have the Old Testament and New Testament. You will never find something that is compatible with the God who burns people for all of eternity. If hell is forever, why is death and Hades finally thrown in the lake of fire? If Satan is destroyed and shall never be more, how could he burn eternally? And by the way, does anybody know where the fire will come that will destroy Lucifer? his own heart. Read Ezekiel chapter 28. Do you want to know why the fire starts right here? It's the origin of sin. The origin of sin. When you take a good look in our world today, you take a good look there are a lot of people who need to understand this. And when they begin to understand this beautiful truth, they will fall more and more in love with this God. And you will see many people who will turn to him who want more of understand, this understanding of who God really is. You know, as people who come from, you know, I come from a background. I actually was born and raised a Hindu. I also come from a Sikh background. When I was learning these great truths, it blew my mind away because all I thought about Christianity was if you have not been converted and have not said the name of Jesus and baptized, you were going to burn it for eternity. And this is what I was, what I was taught. In fact, people would pass out little flyers to me, and it would show just a, a little picture of a man who was on this cross, and he was taking this cross because there was fires underneath. And there was on this other caption where it shows eternal life or eternal pain. And this is what was presented to me, and for the longest time, I could not really understand how a God of love would just really want me to be part of his kingdom. And I wrestled with it, and it was only when the right picture of God was being introduced to me 
that I wanted more of this, God. There are people around you, whether it's your neighbor, someone on your phone, it could be family members, who if they heard this truth would fall in love with God. And they're just waiting for somebody to share with them. We'll end with just two more things and we are done. I love what this individual says. First, I don't believe in the hell you believe in because God is not going to torment people for millions and millions of years. So we smell the burning flesh. But the problem is this, the hell I believe in is hotter than the hell you believe in. They said, what do you mean? I said, the hell the Bible teaches about getting, the hell the Bible teaches about gets the job done. It burns up sinners and sin, consumes them to ashes. Then the, God makes a new world. But the hell you believe in isn't hot enough because it just torments people for millions of years. And you know who said this? Mark Finley. And he said this when he was having this conversation with some people. When God does this job, it's going to get the job done. It's going to completely put out sin and sinners 100%. And God doesn't want us to be part of that. In fact, the devil has so twisted this lie about those who will actually burn for all of eternity that he makes some very egregious presentations that even many Seventh-day Adventists are unaware of. You're saying, what's your point? What are you saying? When you take a good look at Isaiah 33, verse 14 and 15, look what the Bible is saying right here. This is so powerful. It says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. And other wicked people in, in, the, in the church are afraid. They said, fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Now watch the question they ask. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall burn with everlasting fire? They said, who is going to be able to just to live in that eternal fire, that devouring fire? Who's going to be able to just to withstand that fire? And watch the immediate answer. He who walks what? Righteously and speaks uprightly. And you're saying, what? What you begin to understand, it is not the wicked who are going to burn for eternity. It's the righteous. You want to know why? Because they'll live in the presence of God's fire for all of eternity. In fact, when you read the story of Moses, remember when Moses first saw encounter God? He encountered him at a what? A burning bush. And God says, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. You read in the 34th chapter of Exodus, he is now going into the fire. And the Bible says that Moses was in the fire of God for 40 days and 40 nights. What happened? As he grew closer and closer to God, he could withstand that fire to the point where now he wasn't just at a distance. He was now dwelling in the fire of God. And ladies and gentlemen, as we go closer and closer and closer, God makes us more and more ready for his presence. Can you say amen to that? The Bible says in Daniel chapter 12, those who, sh who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the what? Stars forever and ever. And what are stars? Most burning spots in the universe. And this is what God says, we will dwell in the fire of God for eternity. To the wicked, God's presence is going to be a fire that's going to put them out. To the righteous, God's presence will be an eternal light. And he invites each one of us to be part of this. We end, the great controversy is no more. Sin and sinners are no more, the entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness through the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest of Adam to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love.
Ladies and gentlemen, I want to end this presentation with a word of prayer. And my prayer is that one day you will burn for all of eternity in his presence. Amen? Amen. You're like, I've never heard a pastor pray that prayer for me. Let it be your first and not your last. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much because your presence is a consuming fire. And God, we know there are people who have been really hurt and fearful of you, God. And you call us to go out to reach out to them, to bring them back into the fold, to show them who you really are. Jesus, we just pray that our fervency and our desire to present this right truth would grow more and more. And Lord, I know there's people here in this group who you are calling to be a powerful witness of this great truth. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.